Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Nora Loretto, author of the new book, Spin Doctors, How Media and Politicians Misdiagnosed the COVID-19 Pandemic. Hello. Hi. On the show today, Nora, ill communication. Why scaring the living shit out of the public about Omicron might backfire. <laughs> also... The Case Against Feeding the Hungry, a four-part manifesto from Post Media. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. We're actually going to make this case against feeding the hungry. And listener, you may find yourself agreeing. Nora, welcome back to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. Good to be here. This episode is brought to everyone by Jacob Biggio, Tyson Cadell, David Robbins, Linda Lee, Timur Gorgani, Christopher Elliott, Ben LaCharity, and Jeremy. My name is Jeremy Appel. I'm a Calgary-based journalist and podcaster. I support Candleland for its fantastically well-crafted and researched audio documentaries, such as White Saviors and Thunder Bay, as well as its original online reporting. 
both of which more than compensate for Jesse's worst takes. Omicron is spreading like wildfire here in Ontario. It's poised to overtake Delta within days. Its ability to infect people with two or three doses of the vaccine means no one is completely out of harm's way. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Nora, <laughs> oh my this God. sounds terrifying. <laughs> there, listen, listen to Bruce Arthur. Call him after call him the Toronto Star. It's hard to look this in the eye, but COVID's worst is coming. Omicron <laughs> is different from anything we have seen. Omicron is so hellaciously transmissible that it moves faster than we can think. It will explode. Omicron undermines the infection protection of vaccination. Everything Omicron does is exponential at a level that the human mind can hardly grasp. What the fuck? Sorry, that's not real, is it? I read that column and <laughs> I don't remember that. I picked the worst, the scariest, but those are uh, things he wrote in the biggest newspaper in Canada. But look, let's not just uh, focus this on Bruce Arthur. Like a lot of scientists are telling us that we need to be really afraid. Here is Dr. Juni, who is the head of the Ontario Science Table. First, it's that we underestimate it. There are still people out there who say it's a mild disease. That's not true. That's a myth. Okay, so that that's important there, right? That is, that's science speaking. That's a doctor saying it is a myth that Omicron is a mild disease. It's a myth. Mm -hmm. It's not true. And that's a scientist and we have to listen. I'm just a journalist. I'm not a doctor. What do they say, Jesse? <laughs> listen, listen to science. Listen to the scientist. But wait a second. Here's another scientist. Uh, you know, after four weeks, this is now a fourth week. There's no reason why you can't trust us when we say to you it's mild disease. On the positive side, that same study has found that vaccinated people who are infected with Omicron are about one third less likely to end up in the hospital when compared to the original strain of the virus. So that, that first voice people heard was Dr. Angelique Kotze mm -hmm. of the South Africa Medical Association. Unlike Ontario's Dr. Juni, she has direct experience with Omicron at scale over a somewhat extended time period. And she said, she went on to say that it doesn't matter if you're talking about a kid or an 80-year-old, Omicron is coming in mild. And then you heard CNN there reporting on the first big study of Omicron. They looked at over 200,000 cases <laughs> and they adjusted for variables like vaccination and age. And they still found mm -hmm. that Omicron is milder or that's how it's looking so far that it's resulting in 30% less hospitalization. So what the hell is going on here? Nora, you wrote a book on media mismanaging COVID. What are you seeing play out here? Because I've just seen the, the, like basically the scariest headlines since the pandemic first began I've been reading in recent days and weeks. Yeah, honestly, Jesse, it makes me want to die. <laughs> I'm so wow. depressed by all of this. We have a public relations strategy that is uniquely driven by scientists. And I live with a scientist. I mean, I get scientists. I know who they are. I know the kind of people they are. They're an important, like a very important location for knowledge about infectious diseases and what we know and what we don't know about this virus. They are a part of the conversation. They are not the conversation. But in Canada, journalists have outsourced all of the conversation to these scientists. And in doing so, they have given no place to people who 
talk about society and who can put things in perspective and who can, you know, explain what exactly this means. And so what we've been given are these models that say, you know, Omicron is going to travel three times faster than Delta. And if it travels three times faster, it will infect people three times faster. And therefore, uh, it'll be three times faster that our hospitals fill up. And it's like, sorry, are we assuming that we're literally doing fuck all to stop the virus? Is that where we're at right now? Are we assuming that everybody who's unvaccinated is located in the same like 20 square kilometers? And so it's going to like run through them very, very quickly. Are we assuming that everything is always the same and there is no evolution in this pandemic? The answer is yes. And so in all of the coverage of Omicron, we have um, this weird shadow boxing going on between scientists who have their positions and have their positions for specific reasons. They want the population to take this seriously. They're not professional communicators. And, you know, you start to feel like you're in first year science being told that you're an idiot because you don't know how to do chemistry. And there is no uh, counterbalancing analysis voices to then say, okay, what does this actually mean for public policy? Where are politicians failing? Where are they not failing? And what do we need from them? And so what this leaves us with is there's this giant black hole of information related to Omicron that is related to our day-to-day lives. There's no discussion about what does increased virility mean for apartment dwellers when almost half of the Canadian population lives in an apartment of some kind? What does it mean if this is an easier transmissible virus if you live in an apartment? And then what does the public policy implication mean? Like those kinds of discussions are, are nowhere. Or, you know, this is still a virus that disproportionately impacts disabled people, racialized people and poor people. Again, no conversation about what that then means, because it doesn't mean then that Omicron is going to just circulate amongst all of us at the same rate and get all of us sick. No, it's going to target individuals who have been targeted from day one in this pandemic. So it just feels like this Groundhog Day. And because the primary voices we're hearing are from scientists and because there's this generalized feeling that our politicians, regardless of political stripe, regardless of where you are in Canada, are not doing enough, that the only tool that people are using is to scare people and hopefully therefore scare politicians into actually doing something this time, which they will not. (laughs) I kind of feel like you're right. It's not just scientists being locked in their perspective. I do kind of feel like there's an intentionality in like trying to scare people. And I kind of agree that the media is just like, yes, we will scare people. That's the right thing to do here. Just as an aside, I think you said there's increased virility in apartment buildings. Wouldn't it be great if if one of the side effects of this mutation was increased virility? I think you meant virulence. Sorry to be a, a nag about that. <laughs> sure. But I, 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 I like the idea if it increased virility in apartment building dwellers. Like, okay, so I feel like we're being treated like idiots who don't understand simple concepts, which are like concepts that we have been having explained again and again for two years, which is just like, you know, it's okay. You can tell me. If, in fact, at this stage, I know things might change, if, if at this stage it's looking 30% less virulent, like not 30% less contagious, but 30% less like shitty to get this, mm-hmm. you can tell me that. I can be trusted with that information. It's not like if you tell me, Jesse, this hamburger has like half the calories. Oh, great. I'll eat three of them then. No, you missed the point. <laughs> That's actually worse. Like I get that if it's 30% less nasty and less hospitalization and and serious effects, but it's 300% more transmissible. The net effect, the overall effect is that the edge cases, the immunocompromised, the unvaccinated, those are the ones 
fewer of them as a percentage than with Delta, but way more people could get Omicron in a much shorter period of time. And therefore, we have the same dynamics of like the healthcare system being overwhelmed. And that's what they're trying to prevent. And so therefore, they're trying to scare the living shit out of us when in fact, like a thinking person can look at this and say, well, I've had my vaccinations. It's very likely that I'm going to get Omicron anyhow. And it looks like it's not going to be that big a deal. I can be trusted with that information. I'll still do my part to like not give it to other people. But putting this on me and trying to get this emotional response of scaring me, it kind of like, it distracts from like what we know is a shield. Like we're, mm-hmm. we're going to do travel bans or travel advisors. We know the, sh- the shield is vaccination. And, and the real question is, why doesn't everybody have a booster yesterday? And why are we still waiting for second shots for our kids? And I guess to your point about this disproportionately affecting people who work in factories or live in apartment buildings, why are public health measures still not prioritizing those people? Yeah. Yeah. It's very clear that the idea that fear is the only way to convince us to adhere to certain measures is like that's the dominant approach. That's the strategy, obviously. It wraps this entire discussion up into the individual impact and the individual responsibility that we all have to keep ourselves safe. The entire pandemic has been operated in this way, that it's the individual's responsibility to keep themselves safe. It's your responsibility to get vaccinated. It's your responsibility to wear a mask or whatever. And what we've never been able to have an adult conversation about in this country is what happens when you run into a situation where there will be people who refuse to get vaccinated. Like there will be people who refuse to get vaccinated, who will find themselves in the ICU and who will quote unquote clog up the medical system. Whose fault is that? That's the fault of a medical system that is on a normal good day operating at 90 to 110 percent capacity. And so all they're trying to do is convince us that through sheer will of not getting sick, we can overcome the systemic problems within the healthcare system that have been baked in for the last two decades, which is ridiculous. And so we always knew there would be a tier of people who would not get vaccinated because it wasn't mandated from the government. And so then the question is, well, then what's the plan with these people? What's the plan to keep them safe? Or what's the plan to protect the hospital system if they do get COVID and they get severely ill? And the answer to that is there is no plan. Like there is literally no plan. All of the plan was downloaded onto employers and onto entertainment and diversion activities. So sports and bars and concerts where hopefully enough people will feel like they want to go to a concert so they'll eventually get vaccinated or hopefully enough people want to keep their jobs and so they'll get vaccinated. And so again, the response is to scare the hell out of people and make them all feel like they're losing their minds. Like this, the anxiety that I'm seeing from people right now related to Omicron is unbelievable. And it's all in the service of protecting a system that is so fragile in the best of days that it cannot deal with the fact that, yeah, we've got 20% of people who are still not vaccinated and they're not going to get vaccinated and they very well might get Omicron. I don't know if the rank and file journalist who just sort of like, you know, like parrots what we're hearing from scientists is trying to protect the the, the medical system. I think that uh, they have, however, kind of just like abandoned their responsibility to scrutinize some of the public health messaging that we're getting from some of these doctors. And even in that interview with Dr. Peter Juni, he says it's a myth that it's mild. And I think if you actually watch the whole thing, what he means is we don't know yet for a certainty Mm -hmm. that it's milder than Delta. But if you say it's a myth that it's mild, people will hear that as like, it's not true that it's mild. Right. Because he says later on that clip, so we need to forget about wishful thinking here. 
We simply don't know. Now, what does CTV pluck as the headline that it's a myth that this is mild, <laughs> yeah. right? Because they want to err on the side of caution, and they think that scaring people is cautious. It's not cautious to scare people. It actually creates anti-vaxxers. Yeah. When the media like just swallowed this like, oh, there's a shortage of PPE at the beginning of the pandemic, so let's tell people that masks don't work, because that's what we're hearing from Teresa Tam. And it just didn't make any damn sense that masks don't work. You know, that's what Teresa Tam told the media, and that's what the media told the public. And then, you know, sometime later, they reversed themselves completely, and you got to wear a mask everywhere. Well, that fed into the anti-vaxxers. Look, they're just trying to keep us scared and confused. Don't listen to this public health messaging. It has a real effect to keep people in a state of such high anxiety to let them ease off a little bit and then hit that button again. And it has an effect on public public health to tell people, hey, you know that vacation that you desperately need because you're losing it because we're all losing it? You can't go. Or our advice is that you shouldn't go. Yeah. Or you know that like that time with your family that you were looking forward to? Don't do it. You can't like that is that has an effect on everybody. I agree that like I don't know that there's some like great conspiracy scheme to get us to stop to prevent us from having conversations, yes, about the healthcare system, but also just about the government's failures, uh continued failures to vaccinate us as quickly as many other countries. I just kind of feel like we're just groundhog daying this and making the same mistakes again and again. And yeah, fear-mongering maybe because it makes the coverage like like a little bit so, like I don't know. I don't think anybody's like like going for clicks when they when they do those headlines. I actually feel like a lot of the journalists feel like they're doing a really good responsible thing when they like yes, it's time to scare people again then and and I'm just going to pass on the message. Meanwhile, you do see as the study comes out of South Africa, we're like afraid to give people good news. Yeah. Like CTV carried the story of this new study from South Africa that it's looking like this might be milder, but they kind of buried it, you know? And, and like, like I'm not reading that story getting wide pickup in other papers. Like they're, they're afraid. They're afraid to give people anything reassuring because it's, they do want to keep people in a state of anxiety and panic. Yeah. And that's, I think that's just the norm across the Anglosphere around the world, but the, the attachment to negative news and keeping us scared uh, it, it is replicated around the world, and it definitely does get people reading your newspaper. And so whether or not it's intentional, it's a, it's a side effect that benefits the owners of the media companies. And so because of that, there's no pressure to not be negative, right? Like the arguments then tend to be overwhelmingly convincing editors and media owners to be negative because it does get the eyeballs. It does get people into a state of like, okay, I'm paying attention. I'm going to be ready to do what I need to do. And hopefully it'll convince people to stay safe. Well, they're playing with fire. Exactly. And look, we are doing our best with the information we have here. It's possible that we'll learn that 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 uh, it's not milder. I don't know this for a fact. But right now, the information is suggesting that it is significantly milder. And rather than that coming as a great relief, you know, by Christmas or in, in the new year, what's going to happen is people are going to get fucking mad. They're going to get mad and they're going to get mad at reporters and journalists. And there is a contract that people have with like it's it's so easy to, to yeah. hate reporters. Like people find it really, really easy. And we're, we're playing with the, the basic trust that we rely on to do our jobs every day. And like how many mm -hmm. times can we do this? How many times can you take it up to 11? Like we may there, yeah. there will be things that are as important or scarier than the Omicron variant looks right now. And it's it's a boy who cried wolf thing. Like I, I fear for what's happening right now. Yeah, I, th I think it's a real problem. And I think especially because um, 
we're all vaccinated and, and the vaccine was supposed to deliver us. And so how could it even be possible that we're all getting COVID again? Never mind that the statistics actually show like, you know, look, everybody should look where their region was a year ago and compare it to now. And hopefully you'll feel a little bit better because <laughs> there are very positive signs about where we are located in this pandemic. And we know that the vaccines are, are stopping severe disease. I think that there is massive damage being made here as well. And I don't know what it's going to take to get people out of this mindset, especially when we have people saying that this is the end of of the world. You know, I watch all of this with the eyes of a parent who's got a kid who has been in intensive care because of the flu. And the flu season for me every year is like, oh, here we go again. Like it's it's nerve wracking. But it's not nerve wracking to the point of I'm afraid to leave the house. Like we are just so bad at talking about illness in this country and about the risks that we take to live in society. These are normal risks and we have to figure out how to mitigate them for the most vulnerable. And that is completely absent from this conversation. It's been flattened mostly by white journalists of a certain class saying, oh, my God, it's the end of the world. And it's it isn't. It's it's, so far. (laughs) It's not. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. We duly note things. They need to be duly noted. They, they, they have to be duly noted by somebody. So that's our job. Nora, what do you have? Yeah, I have some news that's coming out of Blacklock's reporter. I'm not sure if you saw this, but Blacklock's has found that a company called Life Labs was given a contract worth $66 million. Am I right about that? $66,307,424. Listeners might have heard about Life Labs because they did a lot of the COVID testing uh, during the pandemic. Now, that's probably not weird, but what is 
potentially weird, we don't know, because it's Canada, we don't really talk about this stuff, is that the Minister of Procurement at the time, Anita Anand, uh, who's, you know, currently the Minister of National Defense, her husband, John Knowlton, is on the board of Life Labs. Uh-huh. It, it seems like one of those things that probably should have been proactively disclosed and in not so being definitely sounds more sketchy than perhaps it needs to sound. But uh, Blacklocks is sounding the alarm on this and it's gotten picked up by uh, Post Media News. Um, but I haven't seen much else about it. I think that when we finally get the full picture of pandemic profiteering and the connections to power, it's going to be a very Canadian story. Duly noted. I want to duly note uh, the, the publication in the National Post special series, The Capitalist Manifesto, How Many Millions of People Escaped Poverty, Lived Longer, and Got Television by Michael Higgins. Uh, full full force of, of uh, National Post getting me. This is like somebody was just like, you know, ah, this is going to be good. We're going to publish the <laughs> Capitalist Manifesto and everyone's going to lose their fucking minds. This, like, It's just such obvious trolling. Capitalism gets bad press, but it has changed the world for the better more than all the wars, revolutions, and revolts in history. And what I want to duly note, Nora, is not... <sighs> It's not that this is very obvious trolling because, you know, to note trolling is to feed the trolls and, you know, like, and also, duh, of course, that's what this is. I also don't really want to just simply note that it's just an atrociously bad and boring and predictable piece of writing that could have been written, like, at the height of some, like, I don't know, neocon, you know, Francis Fukuyama, like, you know, isn't this great how everything is so amazing? Like, it's, it's so, it's such old thinking that wherever you are on the spectrum, like how can you praise capitalism without including even in your praise, like some kind of a way to deal with like where we're at with it now, mm -hmm, <laughs> you yeah. know? And like this moment where we're looking at like, okay, but what is that? Uh, the, just uh, like the same newspaper has wire stories about like the glacial wall in Antarctica and like uh, there's some, there, like, you, you have to somehow at least integrate that into your bullshit shit, you know, uh, capitalist manifesto. <laughs> but I, that's not what I'm duly noting. All I want to duly note is like the National Post sucks at capitalism. Mm -hmm. How can they public, like they, they lose money every year and they only continue to exist because of socialism. They, they are on government life support. They're a charity case. The National Post is like a welfare recipient. So come on, guys. Come on. Mm -hmm. That is what I want bring to everyone's attention. Did you see what my reaction to this was on Twitter? I missed it. I will read it for you, and then I will duly note this. I retweeted the uh, series by writing, just have your bottom ribs removed and leave everyone else out of it. I don't get it. <laughs> okay, well, then you're going to have to Google that reference, and I'll say duly noted. It's that time of year again. Today is our annual Holiday Helpers Food Drive. Holy cow, look at the food in there. Tis the season to give, especially to your neighbors in need across the GTA. That's where Sounds of the Season comes in, CBC's annual charity drive for local food banks. Heartwarming sounds from CTV and CBC there. They, they have their annual uh, giving back. CBC goes big with this Sounds of the Season thing and then across the country, mm -hmm. and they encourage the public to get involved. And, you know, I think that they lean into it for um, how good it makes them look. And, you know, who could question that? Well, 
Toronto Star questions that. Here's a recent article by Elaine Power, Paul Taylor, and Valerie Tarasek. Headline of this opinion piece, food drives are not the answer to poverty and hunger. This is the time of year when the three of us turn off CBC Radio. We cannot bear to listen to the sounds of the season's cheerful promotion of food bank donations. We are not Grinches or Scrooges. We most assuredly want everyone in Canada not to have to worry about putting food on the table, but we object to our national broadcaster helping to perpetuate the myth that if we all just pitch in for food banks, then we can end hunger. Nora, are you against feeding the hungry? I totally agree with that frame, and I think that the obsession with food banks at this time of year is definitely a big problem. So, yes. I guess the argument, as I understand it, is that, like, this is a last-ditch Band-Aid solution on poverty and hunger and food insecurity. And my understanding is that, like, even food banks say, we are not the solution to this. This should not be the way that we deal with the fact that people don't have enough to eat. Mm-hmm. And there are other conversations about uh, things like universal basic income that you'd think, you know, maybe the public broadcaster would want to have. And maybe they do bring, you know, it's not like they never bring that up, but it kind of seems like they've thrown in there a lot behind the food bank solution in a way that prevents them from questioning whether or not that's like maybe even harmful. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, like to see critical coverage on um, on food banks or on charity in general anywhere across the mainstream media is very, very rare. Uh, so it's great that this opinion piece was written. This morning on my local radio station, they were talking about how there's a drop in donations this year. And they threw to the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses as the expert voice in explaining why businesses are not able to donate as much this year. And it was just like encapsulated the entire problem for me. This is a group that opposes increased payroll taxes and opposes increased quote-unquote burden on the employer, so taking any profits from their members and putting it into social services. And they are somehow the expert on the fact that people are donating less this year for these charity drives. It was just so backwards and bizarre. And I was thinking to myself, what newsroom thought that that was a coherent story? The holiday season is a very bizarre time because it's like white people's guilt is on like full display and then they pour everything they can into these like very minor charity exercises. And, you know, I already mentioned having a kid been in uh, the ICU. I think about this all the time because he was actually in the ICU when he was five at Christmas. So Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And I got to see what Ronald McDonald House looks like and what the children's ward of an intensive care unit looks like on Christmas morning. And it was over the top. It was so uncomfortable. I woke up and there's like all these people who was very clear that the, the, all they like they live for their Christmas morning serving parents at Ronald McDonald House. It's very charming. But the last thing I want is 20 people begging for me to have them bring me an omelet or something like this. And the kids were given too many presents. My partner ended up leaving saying he was running down the hallway as some man was like throwing Canadian Tire gift cards at him. It's so misplaced. And it's not a way to fix any of the fundamental problems that we have within society. And in Instead, what it is is to say, well, you know, the rest of your year sucks, but maybe we can give you um, some canned beans at Christmas and you can feel better. It's really, really uh, unacceptable. And the fact that it is so normalized in the mainstream press is is a really big problem. You know, you you just took me back. Uh, Just weirdly, coincidentally, we've had the same experience. One of my kids was in uh, an ICU with pneumonia years ago. On Christmas, and uh, like I don't want to speak ill of like the staff there were wonderful, and like it was a terrifying experience, and and they you know mm-hmm. you know 
they nursed, uh, you know, treated uh, our kid uh, back to health. But there was just this, like, you know, there were areas in which the care could have been better. There were, uh, you know, obviously we saw some of the fractures in the healthcare system. We were moved from one hospital to the next, like with a kid who shouldn't have been transported. It was scary. And yet there was this incredible emphasis on like, oh, my goodness, you're here over Christmas. Here's a teddy bear. And it was weird. It was weird that there was all this resource and effort towards like, you know, that this Christmas, this poor kid on Christmas, like, well, what about the actual health care, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I'm like, we're Jewish. I, I just, you know, like, can we, I, I, it's okay. We can be here on Christmas. It's all right. <laughs> I'm of two minds about this because I understand. And I think like, I don't want to scorn people who are just like, hey, I'm trying to feed hungry people here. I'm giving some food to like, what's like, how could that be bad? But I do think there's, there's something to talk about here in terms of like, we seem to be desirous to do anything to avoid engaging with this in a way that has to do with policy or politics. You know, somebody's hungry, give them a sandwich. It's like, okay, that's nice and clean. Give them a can of beans, give them the weird food that you don't eat anyhow. Like that's mm-hmm. like, there's no political, you're not like on the left or, or taking a position. It's just feeding the hungry. But uh, anything to do with looking at systemic or structural problems that create poverty or hunger uh, is like a, people get squinchy about it, you know? So you do have other media engaging in this or even taking a position, you know, the conversation around it piece, Canada must eliminate food banks and provide a basic income after COVID-19. You know, our producer Aviva brings my attention to like the history of food banks that like they were never supposed to be a permanent solution. They they were introduced in the 80s as like there was a time of urgent emergency need and somehow they've become entrenched. And, you know, some media are in a position to look at that. You know, again, the Toronto Star last January ran a piece, food banks don't reduce food insecurity. So why did the federal government give them $200 million in emergency aid, you know, like how has this become the way that we deal with this? It was not supposed to be the way. And I do think that there's a problem with media brands getting tied to this solution because you like you are kind of taking a position when you make that part of your and let's face it, it is part of your marketing campaign. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned um, the emergency aid because at the same time that they were giving food banks $200 million, they were giving literally nothing to the poorest Canadians. And so you had to have demonstrated to get the CERB that you had made at least $5,000 in 2019. So by definition, the poorest people in this country were, were given no direct aid. And instead, they were told to go to their local food bank to fulfill their their food kind of needs or to try and achieve some sort of food security, Uh, you know, regardless of the fact that it wasn't safe to even travel, it wasn't safe to be on the bus, it wasn't safe to be in congregate spaces, and then you're forcing people to go and gather with other people who are food insecure to try and get, you know, that those cans or whatever vegetables they're able to get from the local, you know, markets or whatever. And that didn't get very much scrutiny. Instead, the mainstream narrative was, was far more critical of people who received CERB and almost entirely erase the people who were too poor to receive CERB. I thought that was very, very interesting. And of course, then there's an entire other conversation that we did not have in Canada, which is why doesn't the federal government just give food to people directly? Like, -hmm. like that's possible, especially during a pandemic. If you're keeping people in quarantine, why don't you just give the food directly to people? Give people rice, give people flour, give them staples where they can actually make other food that they then can eat. But no, instead, we've created this system where they are reliant on these not-for-profit corporations and the benevolence of the people within their communities or their media companies. So it's a huge problem, and I'm glad to see at least there be a sliver of a conversation of this in a in a mainstream newspaper. 
You know, I live, uh, you know, in downtown Toronto and I guess what people call like a mixed use neighborhood where there's all kinds of different class stratus in the same, in the same radius. And so there's this like fancy ass bakery where I know you can spend 12, but someone once told me they had a $20 loaf of bread in this bakery. It's obscene and suckers, uh, you know, like me, will line up every day. I, I haven't lined up at this particular bakery, but I, I totally don't distinguish myself from the suckers who do. Like, I'll, I'll, you know, if like for the right croissant, I might I might line up on the right morning. But there's every morning a lineup outside of this fancy ass bakery for people who want to spend, I don't know, 12, maybe $20 on a loaf of bread. Now, as it happens, if you go one block south, but on the same stretch, like, you know, vis-a-vis east and west, there's a lineup out front of another storefront. And that's a food bank. Like you could have a drone and it would let you, like you would have in the same neighborhood of Toronto, assholes like me lined up to spend 20 bucks on a loaf of bread and then a lineup of people looking to get a can of beans. Mm -hmm. The bourgeois bread lines are very confusing to me. Um, yeah, like, you know, all of the conversation that we're having right now about inflation and food costs in this country, it is scandalous that almost never in the conversations, whether it's in the pages of the Toronto Star, whether it's on the CBC, whether it's in post media, we are never hearing about the profits, the incredible profits that food companies are making. And it's all like, oh, food prices are going up. Oh, supply chain. Oh, demands outstripping supply. Oh, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, sorry, no. Loblaw Corporation made a ton of money during the pandemic. Cargill has made money. JBS Meats has made money. Like all of the food processing companies that are massive are making yeah. huge profits. And if we're not taxing them, which we are not taxing them adequately because, you know, Canada's corporate tax rate has been consistently lowered over the last two decades, then obviously we're going to undercut our ability to then give money, redistribute money to people who need it. And then even worse, we've got a government that won't even give money to people who need it when they're in the most dire of straits. And so, you know, these are fundamental problems within society. They're very simple problems, but it's too simple in some ways. And so you have to create this whole charity uh, network to allow for, I don't know, c- companies to feel good about making their donations, to, to allow for grocery stores to feel good about passing a buck, asking people to give a buck when they're at the cash rather than the company itself giving that money. And it's, you know, this is capitalism. I wonder if the National Post will include this in their profile in capitalism. <laughs> you know, the bougie bread lines, it's just such an ob- obscene uh, twist on <laughs> things. Because I'll tell you where we're at in, I guess, what some people call late stage capitalism is in response to like, oh, I don't buy my shit from some massive corporate food uh, brand. And in recognition of the idea of like, yes, it's just flour and water, I accept that the craftsmanship and labor involved have a price tag. You actually get a situation where assholes, you know, like me, not only will we pay something like $12 for a loaf of bread, if you can convince me that it's like, oh, this is the best of the best, but that it's a moral good to do so, right? Like, right. spend your money on whatever the hell you want. And bread can be wonderful. It can be transcendent. You know, if, if you're some weird perv for bread, go spend your money on bread, you, you <laughs> schmuck. But, like, there actually is this idea that, like, this is what everybody should be doing and not just some decadent, ridiculous waste. You know, this is – I'm a good person. Uh-huh. Well, this is also very funny to me because bread is so fundamental to everybody's culture. I mean, maybe other than white people with no culture. But if you're white and you have some sort of connection to culture, you obviously have some sort of connection to bread. And bread is not a rich person's food. Like the idea that you would be paying $20 for artisanal 
bread that your you know grandmother probably could make for you know a couple of cents is an interesting comment on the commodification of something as fundamental as bread as traditional as bread and again if we were just to give poor people the staples that they needed they too could make transcendent bread but you know we're so class stratified that yeah you're going to stand outside for 20 minutes for probably something that I can pick up for a buck uh, down the street because I live in Quebec <laughs> oh look at you Living in Quebec. I had to get that and in with there. with the grandmother who makes nice bread. Oh, that your grandmother, maybe your grandmother. You know, this is really about is the commodification of grandmothers. You know, if, if, if I'd pay 30 if it was all grandmothers. <laughs> that is Shortcuts this week. Thank you, Nora, for joining me. You bet. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com. And I read everything that you send. Nora, where, where can people find you? And what is the name of your book again? Yeah, I really, p- people, please buy my book. I mean, it's, it really needs to sell. <laughs> it's called Spin Doctors, How Media and Politicians Misdiagnosed the COVID-19 Pandemic. And you can get it in bookstores across Canada, especially the independent ones. Or you can go right to the website of the publisher, fernwood.ca, and, uh, and order it directly from there. See, now that ad, you did well. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn, and theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Do you know someone who likes Canada Land or even loves it? Uh, you can now give them a gift subscription. Head over to canadaland.com slash gift. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.